Well, this morning, and, and we're going to be working through the seven churches of Asia as a uh, precedent for what we're going to be talking about. Today, we start with the church at Ephesus. And let me give some background to what we're going to be looking at in Revelation. What's happened is John has had this vision. He's on the island of Patmos, and he's had this vision. And he is taken up, whether in spirit or in body, or it's just a vision. Who knows? But he gets a view of the throne of God. It's a very unique experience. And you'll see that in Revelation 1. Now, the Lamb begins to speak, the Lamb being Christ Jesus, begins to speak to John and begins to utter prophecy. He starts with the church. Let me clarify what the church is since we're going to say it about 5,000 times over the next few weeks. The church is not this building. The church in Ephesus is not that gate and not that edifice. The church are those who name Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. A real simple way to understand it is based out of, oddly enough, Ephesians 5. Where Christ, or actually Paul, refers to a marriage relationship as an analogy of the relationship between Christ and His people. And when he talks about His people as being the bride of Christ... The word the church is used. So if you know Jesus Christ, if you have faith in Christ, you are the church. Our society has kind of messed that word up, haven't they? It, it has been a little bit desecrated into this idea that the church can be anything. Even under our laws, it, it can be a church that doesn't worship Christ whatsoever. Most of the time when you mention a church, people think of sometimes a building or a political ideal. But we have to reset. We have to reboot. We're coming at it from the understanding and the aspect of what does Christ see the church as? Because there's things that we need to understand with Him being our Savior, with Him being our King. What is His expectation? That is the only expectation that counts. Amen? It is the only expectation that counts. But sometimes we have let other influences flood in and kind of distort our understanding of that. So what, what's going to happen here is as you look at each of these churches, these seven churches over the next few weeks, understand that there's this parallelism that's written into Revelation. It's with this number seven. And this is the start of it. The seven churches. Let's see, let's see what you all know. The seven churches, the seven lamps, the seven... Horses, the seven chickens, what? I don't know about any seven chickens. Uh, the, the seven seals, right? And not the ones that are over in the bay on Pier 39. Right? I hear a lot of, there's a lot of sevens. This is the first demonstration of that. Now, there is a pattern to each of these churches that Jesus decides to speak in. It's a beautiful pattern of poetry. First of all, he's going to reveal, uh, uh, well, you know what? I'm going to save that just for a moment. We're, we're, we'll get to that in just a second. What you're going to find in these letters each week is that there's, there's different um, uh, approaches to each of these churches. Now, scholars have taken different approaches. How many of you consider yourself a hyper-dispensationalist? Exactly. <laughs> How many of you consider yourself a preterist, a historicist? 
Okay, now that I know my audience, fantastic. Let's just move on. But those are all big words that maybe two or three people in the building understand that there are those that think that the seven churches represented the church through seven different dispensations or ages. That these churches actually existed. It was only for them at that time. They did actually exist. Uh, that this is just a, um, it, it is a picturesque view of, of what Christ desires for his people. We're not going to get wrapped up into all of that. We're not doing a study in Revelation. We're doing a study on the church. So what I want us to focus on, so please, I, I'm saying all this so you don't come to me with all of these theories, all of these uh, approaches that you learned in Bible school and, and, uh, and that you've read or you've heard on the Bible Answer Man with Hank Hanegraaff or anything like that. We're not going to go down those roads. We are simply going to focus on Christ's expectation for his church. Regardless of whether this was applied to one age or a different age or now or whatever, we can definitively look at this and say, this is what Jesus expects. And this is like hitting that. How many of you have Norton security on on your computer? Any of you? Or McAfee or McAfee or however you say that, McLovin, I don't know, whatever. And and you hit that button, fix now, and you're watching. It's going through and it's cleaning. And you just breathe easy. Everything's back to where it should. That's kind of what we're doing here, folks, is we've got to hit that reboot button. So as we get into this, let me give you a little bit of history of the church of Ephesus. It's kind of fascinating. This is the theater at the church. We did a study in the book of Ephesians uh, a couple summers ago. Now, as you go out that road from this theater, you see all the dirt that's out there at, at a particular time, just past those ruins. Here, let's see if my laser pointer works here. Just past these ruins was actually the ocean. And because of earthquakes and because of um, just l- things that happened and, and great feats of engine, no, just because of some of the natural disasters that had happened in the area, that whole area filled in with land. And so what happened to the city of Ephesus? Ephesus was the second most powerful and occupied city in the time of the Roman Empire during Christ. It was a metropolis. It was the place that people flooded to. And you'll see why in just a moment. This theater was the area that, out of Acts 19 that we read where the crowds gathered because of Demetrius. Uh, he was a silversmith and he made little figurines. We'll see that in a minute. And, and he riled the crowds and drug a couple of Paul's uh, disciples into that stadium And they were going to either kill them or imprison them. This is that exact theater. And you would have had the entire town. By the way, it was so full, Paul couldn't get into the theater. This theater holds over 25,000 people. And for two hours, the scripture says, they chanted, behold the goddess Artemis. You know, they're like, Artemis, Artemis, right? So loud that the city mayor was concerned that the governor was going to incite a riot. And they would have a major problem on their hands. All of this is in Acts 19. You're looking at the theater where this happened. Now you can just imagine that the city would have come right up this road and drug these people into the center of the theater. And today, if you stand here, you can just talk like this. And you can be heard at the very, very top. So imagine the yelling for two straight hours 
some of the history that we want to look at that goes into this area. Why Ephesus? Well, it was this huge, booming metropolis. What else happened? Well, first of all, let me explain this statement to you. Placiat homini, placiat tibi, placiat deo. Please man, please yourself, please God. This is the decision that we have to face today. Are we going to please man? Are we going to please ourselves, Or are we going to please God when it comes to the church? The church belongs to one. It's the one who died for you and I. So therefore, in my understanding, or my appreciation, he's the one I should be seeking to please. This is our focal point. This is our reboot. A church balanced in spirit and in truth. You're going to hear the word balanced over and over and over because this is what Christ is calling for in his letters to the seven churches. He's not calling for one focus over another focus. He's asking for a picture of all that he expects from his church. And many of these churches were unbalanced. For you and I today, the question is, are we unbalanced? By the way, it's not just about Concord Bible Church. The church is the individual. And as the individuals come together, we happen to make up Concord Bible Church. So as we challenge with these questions this morning out of Scripture, they are to be applied to the individual and then corporately. So the church at Ephesus was unbalanced. Hashtag unbalanced. Some other characters that fit into this story, just kind of give you a picture. This is a church that in the span of Scripture, as we see it, from when it started in Acts 19 under Paul's direction to the point where John is writing here, probably 90 A.D., you're looking at somewhere around 40 years approximately. That's just about how old this church is. In 53 to 57, that's when we see the Acts 19 establishment of the church. 63 to 64, Paul writes the first letter to Timothy, who's now been established as an elder. This church was popping. This was a mega church at the time. All right, You had a lot of big names at this church. Timothy was an elder. John and Mary, the mother of Christ, lived in where? Ephesus. They would have been part of this church. This church exploded because... Ephesus was a hub of the world. It literally says in Acts 19 that Paul had to move out of the synagogue because they were going to kill him. And he moved into the hall of Tyrannus. And he preached there the gospel for two years. And it says literally this. You talk about multiply. That everyone in Asia heard about Christ. That's how big and important Ephesus was. So now think about that. Think of if you're in a church that's in the most important city in your nation, in your geographic area, what advantages, disadvantages are you going to face as a church? What trials, what challenges are you going to, what do we face as a church here in the United States? What do we face as Concord Bible Church? There are a lot of stipulations that are roaming around our nations about what the church should be or shouldn't be. You know, public opinion does not own the church. Jesus Christ owns the church. So let's be careful about what the church should be or what the church shouldn't be and who gets to stipulate that. Let's look at this church of Ephesus. Hashtag unbalanced. This is where they were. Um, I believe that Philip and Magda have been to this place. They're going to recognize... Oh, you have too, Pam. 
lot of, uh, lot of people are going to recognize this. It's uh, modern-day Kudasi, Kudasai. I don't know how it's Japanese. Who knows, whatever. But it's right there on the peninsula of the Aegean Sea. Okay, here's Greece. Here's Rome over here. And it was strategic. And Paul is bouncing all over these places in his missionary journeys. This is the temple of Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. Can you see why Ephesus was like that day's Las Vegas? It was the place to go. Now let me show you what happened to the church and some of the problems that the church faced. This is going to give you some background as to why we're seeing these things written by Christ 40 years after the establishment of this church. This is a, one of the little figurines of Artemis, the goddess. Now, Demetrius made his money off these figurines, as well as a lot of people. You know how commerce works, right? Why do you go to Las Vegas? Because you're stupid. No, let's move on. Why, why do people come to the city here? See the, give me, give me three landmarks. Golden Gate. Alcatraz. So we're looking at a bridge, we're looking at a prison, and we're looking at an old rusty car. That's fantastic. You can build tourism off that. That's incredible. It says a lot about humanity. Right? People flock from all over to come here, and guess how many maps, how many boats are there in the bay that give rides to Alcatraz? You're making money. Now somebody comes along and starts preaching another gospel... And says that your God is worthless and dead, and people start listening. It doesn't take a business major. It doesn't take Mark Cuban to figure out. Pretty soon, I'm out of money. So I got to shut this guy down. This is some of the pressure the church was under at Ephesus. Here's kind of what it looked like back in the day. If if you went on a tour of Ephesus back in the day, they'd hand you this little brochure. You'd unfold it, and, and you could find out, you know, where Demetrius lived. I don't know. Um, but you can see right here that this was the water area, the bay. This was the theater. This was where this temple would have been. And this, uh, this area right here is very interesting and a big challenge for the, for the Christian church. Let me tell you real briefly about that. That's the agora. That's like the market. And as you entered the agora, there was a little altar. And it was to... Guess who? Artemis. By the way, do you want to know another reason everybody flocked there is people, uh, individuals who had a, a challenge, even back in those days, had the challenge of having children. She was the goddess of fertility. So what would you do? I mean, we've got people today that will spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to fertility doctors. Now you have, go back in time, nothing's changed. The desperate desire to have children so they would come and they would offer an offering to Artemis at the temple. You can see why you're getting so many people, so many people coming to Ephesus. Uh, let me explain real quickly about the Agora. So you would have an altar. You had to pick up some incense before you could buy anything in the Agora, the marketplace, where you'd get your food. And you'd have to drop it in, into the altar as a sacrifice. And most merchants would not let you purchase unless you did a sacrifice to Artemis. So conflict. Survival. Acceptance. Living in a society. We think today, how many of us hear that the Lord's coming back because of how evil the world is today? It's getting worse and worse and worse, right? 
I don't think so. Sin is sin is sin. We just don't know how bad it was back in that day. This is our passage. Let's look at it. Revolution. Revolution. Revelation 2, 1 through 4, and then we'll follow up with 5 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. I told you that every single one of these letters breaks down into uh, six basic standards. And and, uh, sometimes there isn't part of this, sometimes there is, but you're going to see a continuity here. And so that's how we're going to look at it this morning. Number one, you're going to see... Almost every single time he goes and and writes a letter, you're going to see Jesus' self-description out of chapter 1. Secondly, you're going to hear a commendation. Third, you're going to hear a a rebuke. Then you're going to hear a solution, and then a consequence and a reward. We're going to see all of those today. So let's start first with Jesus' self-description. Verse 1, He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and walks among the seven lampstands. I told you we're not doing an exposition of Revelation, so I'm not going to break that down for you. All you need to know is he's making an authoritative statement of himself. How great he is, and how he is the authority, how he is in control, and how he alone is the one that we should be concerned about. Amen? Secondly, he goes to the commendation, verse 2 and 3, and actually 6 as well. Let me read it again. He says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Verse six, he says this, yet this you have. In other words, great job. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So what is he saying here? He's speaking about their decisive and, and, and decidedly and marked uh, uh, approach to truth. Now think about it. This is a church that lives in the landscape or the shadows of one of the seven wonders of the world. Think about it. They're constantly facing a challenge to who they are and what is truth and what did Jesus say. Think about Ephesians where Paul writes a letter to them And is stipulating and saying, stop letting these things creep in to what you believe. Pagan heresies that were out there, whether Jewish heresies or worldly heresies. Not much has changed from the time that he wrote. Because this is where this church exists. It is a constant problem. And what does Jesus say about them? You do a great job. 
I'm going to commend you for this. You have made the truth something important. You have not surrendered my truth to public opinion. You know what happens when we surrender truth to public opinion? Let me show you a demonstration of that. Some things are not subject for personal interpretation, like Scripture. Or, what this octogenarian decided to do uh, to a beautiful fresco. You may have heard of this story. Where she thought, well, I'll just go clean up this picture. Do you remember when this happened? Uh, yeah. She thought she was going to make this beautiful fresco look better. She sincerely believes she did make it look better. And that's her work on the right. And so, here's the challenge. The world looks from the outside and looks at this and says, you ruined this painting. And she looks at it and she says, are you kidding me? Did you see it before? Look at the vibrant colors. <laughs> now some people take this a little bit too far. They've actually made it kind of a joke. Right? This has become iconic in our society. And, uh, you know, and this, this is obviously way too far. That's just not even right. So, thinking about it, public opinion is left for public issues. There is a proper time to be subjective. But when it comes to the truth of Jesus Christ, folks, that is not open for public opinion. This past week, I read a couple more stories. When it comes Now, now hear me clearly. Because what I'm about to say will probably land me in jail one day. And that day is probably coming sooner than later. Saw another three articles this past week about the issue of homosexuality, Christ, gay marriage, the whole debate. Before I tell you this issue of truth, the statistics say that we've got probably three or four people in here that struggle with same-sex attraction. The statistics say that 20% of you, and that's growing to try probably 25 by the end of this service, that we seem to think that it's all about loving somebody and not judging them. And that the church has turned into this cruel, judgmental, heartless group of people that are so far from Christ that we have wandered. Let me share with you the one consistency I see over and over and over by churches that have reversed their stand on what Jesus and the Bible say. First of all, I would just simply replace this with coveting. Okay? Focus now. Unbalanced. What did Christ commend the church at Ephesus for? holding on to the truth and enduring, not letting go of it. Don't let the public opinion seep in. And that church was one of the strongest churches. Just read an article this past week where a pastor of a Baptist church down in La Mirada has reversed his belief in this. And this is happening all the time. Every time I see a reversal of this belief, I have never seen, I'm not saying this because of my personal views, I'm saying this just didactically, factually. 
every time that I have read, talked to, or seen a reversal of an opinion, it has to do with personal experience. Not once have I found somebody who just studying the scriptures has said, oops, I missed it. This actually is permissible under God's view, under God's thoughts. And how does that happen? Let's not even go into that arena. Let's just go into the arena of coveting. There are pastors that stand in their pulpits and tell you that if you just give enough, you're going to receive a nice new car. Do you know that that's just as bad as, as anything else that's out there? The church has tons of sins slapped all over their edifice. I mean, we just go down the line, coveting, stealing, lying. It doesn't matter. There's nothing unique and special about this particular issue other than for me to come out and say that I believe Scripture has not changed. I'm not even going to use the word traditional. I'm just going to say it's the truth. It's what Scripture says. Now, this particular pastor at this particular church reversed his understanding because his son came out as same-sex attraction. And his statement was, I'm tired of having people come up to me and say that they just feel bad and doesn't Christ accept me? So by this logic, I can go to the coveter who says, Pastor, you're saying that Scripture says I shouldn't covet. You're saying that God says I shouldn't covet, that that is the standard of truth. But that makes me feel bad because I covet. Oh, you know, if enough people, if enough of you come to me and say, Pastor, that makes us feel bad, I think I'm going to reverse my understanding of Scripture. Young people, teenagers, you're growing up in a time where they were, there is a definite effort to change your mind on this, and I will tell you exactly how it's versed. And this is how they did it in Ephesus, or tried to do it in Ephesus. Stop being so judgmental. And if you buy into that, you will sacrifice the truth. You remember this, right? Stop being so judgmental. Come on, who are you to say that that's horrible? <laughs> Do you understand the fallacy of it? The biggest challenge that Satan's doing to take down the church is to get us to emotionally react to this. Because I love this person and they're struggling. Great. Continue to love this person. Even if they are struggling. But the truth of Christ is the truth of Christ. And as the church at Ephesus was commended for holding to that truth, my friends, what about us? What about us at Concord Bible? Are we going to hold to the truth? Are we going to be balanced or are we going to be unbalanced? So what did Christ say to them about being unbalanced? Well, let's look at it real briefly. He says this in verse 4. You have abandoned the love you had at first. He actually says, uh, but this I hold against you, right? But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. What does that mean? Many of you have heard this, that you lost your first love. You know, the best way to say this is simply this. Go back to the book of Ephesians and look at the things that Paul was recognizing within that church. And part of what we see here is out of, uh, 
out of Ephesians 1. He says, for this reason, because I what? Because I heard it is your reputation. What? Of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards what? All the saints. You see, the early church would have held on to and grabbed a hold of this idea. Love the Lord your God and love what? Your neighbor as yourself. When Christ is holding them accountable to this, he's saying, you lost that. You were known for this. Paul's saying, hey, I commend you because I, I heard that this is what you were all about. Who's this remind me of? Reminds me of Concord Bible Church. That's the thing I hear over and over and over about this church is that we are so loving. You know, folks, as we grow as a church, there's a danger that's coming. And that is that we lose this identity like the church at Ephesus lost because they got so big. And they became unbalanced because they became all about doctrine and enduring and holding the truth, which is good. Christ commended them for that. But they became so focused on that, they forgot the other part that they were commended for. To be loving. To be loving. What will happen with Conquer Bible Church as we grow? Will Christ say about us, about you and me as individuals, that we were champions of truth and we held to that? But because of our heart for truth, we lost our heart of love for those that are hurting, those that are suffering, those that need compassion. We just become about truth. There are a lot of churches like that today. Can we just agree for the future of our church, wherever God takes it, we're going to hold on to the balance of holding spirit and truth. Please. The solution, verse 5. What do they do? He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold you accountable to this. So here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to do. He says what? Remember from where you have fallen. Remember? They're commended by Paul. You were a loving group. You loved Christ. You loved people. Remember who you were. Because you had it. And then do what? Repent. Turn. Turn. Leave that stuff behind. Get out of it. My son works for Scott at Mobile Living. And he comes home and he's just like, I can't even describe it. He's just, he's a great kid. He's beautiful. It sounds like I'm going to bag on, on how he looks. He's covered with dirt. Okay? And he's a different person when he takes a shower. Amen. He's a different person when he comes out of that shower. That's kind of what it, it's like when we have sin that's entered in our life and we repent. It's washed off. It's gone. There's no visible traces. That's what it means to repent. But it's not just to repent. It's repent and remember from where you've fallen so you can get back to that. My friends, to you and I today, have we left aside? Are we unbalanced according to Christ? Maybe we're so much about loving, but we've given up the truth. I think that's one of the things that is plaguing our churches today is they think, if I just accept you, I put my arm around you, and I just I don't say what the truth is, that's love. Folks, it's not love if I'm sending somebody the opposite way of Jesus' truth. That is, a, that is a lie. 
Have you ever let somebody fall into a prank and they really got hurt and you felt bad afterwards? This is a vicious prank. To say that I love somebody so I'm going to be silent about truth. I'm just going to love. It's not love. Spirit and truth equals balance. Let the Lord sort out all of those things for each person. Let the Lord be the determiner. That's what we're saying today, right? It's about what Christ thinks, not public opinion. It's about what Christ thinks about His church. That's the solution. What's the consequence? Verse 5. He says this, If not, if you don't repent... Now this is the part about Christ. It's like, wait a minute. Jesus was like smiles and glowing robes and fishes and bread and happiness. Jesus is holy. And Jesus wants to give us everything we have or need to succeed. He wants you to succeed. And if we start running in a pattern that's going to cause destruction, guess what? Just like you're a parent, you're going to do everything you can to keep that person from being destroyed or that child from being destroyed, aren't you? If you're loving. And so he says there's consequences if you don't repent. He says what? I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What does this mean? I'm just going to tell you my opinion. We don't know for sure. Here's the inference. I'm going to remove my spirit from your church. I have one question. Do you want to be a church individually and corporately without the Spirit of God? Because those exist. And those churches are widely accepted by a lot of Ephesian people coming in and out of the port. Not the church at Ephesus, but the crowds. Folks, the consequence comes because of love. Because of love and because of justice. We have to repent. Then there's a reward. I love rewards. I love rewards. I got a reward one time. Sorry, I'm just going to I'm going to extrapolate here. Not that I ever do that. But uh, just show you into the sinful mind of your pastor here. You ready? Oh, now you're all nervous. Now you're all paying attention. I woke some of you up. Um, I love rewards. I don't ever tell anybody that. So this is a confession. OK. And I, I coached a, a team down south that just did so well. It was incredible. And it became a huge story in the, in the sports genre. And it became such a story, not just because of what these girls accomplished on the field, but because of the character and the things that we're trying to... I'm trying to take biblical principles and put them on a public high, high school team. And it was noticed. Amazing how that works. And the three sports writers that were at our games noticed a visible change, and they started writing it down. It was fantastic. And the next thing I know, our team is nominated for Sports Story of the Year or something. I don't even remember the category. But we go to this beautiful, huge banquet. We're up against the tree sitter. Remember the tree sitter down in in Valencia about 10 years ago? Remember that guy? We're up against that guy. 
as far as a public figure, and Kyle Bowler. Um, so I was up for male sports figure of the year. Actually, that was me. I was up against the tree sitter and Kyle Bowler and, and somebody else. And uh, I was really excited about it. I didn't let anybody know it was all about the team because, you know, it's all about the team. But I was really excited. And, and so I didn't win, and I was crushed, but I moved on. But I had this little, you know, you know those, uh, it's not plexiglass, but it's like acrylic. And, and it said, you know, nominated male sports figure, all supreme, great guy in the world kind of thing. I don't know. It said something like that. And it was in my office. It was just kind of in an obscure spot. And we were moving offices, and our church was so great, they moved my office for me. They lost it. I have been heartbroken ever since. It has destroyed my life as I view things. But I love rewards. Do you like rewards? There's nothing wrong with that. Christ has rewards set for us. So if we repent, if we are a balanced church, what's waiting for us? He says this, I will grant to eat for those who do this, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Two things there. Number one, that means eternal life. That was the tree that was in the Garden of Eden. It was taken out. It's now in paradise. Paradise is another way of saying heaven. And so if you're in heaven, guess what? You're in heaven. That's part of the reward. And I love to eat, so, you know, it's going to be great. Bottom line is this. It's not so much about the items there. Those are precious items. Just understand the character of your God. That if you live righteously according to how He wants His church to live, He will reward that church. And for us, my reward came Thursday at a table in Baldwin Park. Much better than some acrylic little trinket that got lost. Folks, why are we doing multiply? Because God asked for it from His church. Because we need to be a balanced church. One of the things you've heard me say, though, that I'm most excited about is that you experience the joy. You experience the joy of sharing the gospel with those who are looking for the answer. There is nothing that replaces that. That is the greatest reward I can, I can experience. This morning, for us as a church, are we balanced? Hashtag balanced. Or are we unbalanced like the church at Ephesus? We need to hold to truth and not let public opinion shape what this says. Christ shapes this. And it is good. Secondly, as we focus on that, let us not lose sight of loving those around us. Let us be balanced in what we do day by day at home, at work, here. Let's let this church be ruled in spirit and in truth. Let me close in prayer. And then as I do so, we've got a couple things that we want to run by you and we'll prepare for our offering. If you're visiting with us today, we're glad you're here. There are uh, cards in the back of the chairs. If you want to let us know who you are. If you want to make a contact with us, fill that out. Just drop it in the offering plate or leave it outside with the kiosk individuals and, and ministry team. And um, 
If you have any prayer requests, put those on the back of those cards as well. We're faithful about prayer here and we see prayer work. Um, remember, you can pick up some more of these cards, the sheets. Um, I didn't explain this to you, but this is another opportunity for you to take these cards and spread them around and pray over them before you hand them out. Ask God to do whatever He would do with this and see what happens. All right, let me pray uh, that the Lord would use these words this morning to challenge your heart, to encourage you, and to lead you towards those rewards that He has for you, that we would be a balanced church. And then I'm going to ask the men to prepare for the offering. Father, thank You for blessing us with every spiritual blessing in heaven and on earth, for lavishing upon us Your grace, for giving to us the ministry of reconciliation. Lord, let us be a church that You are pleased with. Let us be a church that when it's, when it's all been said and done, that even though we may have struggled, we would have endured. Even though we may have been tempted, we will have persevered. And even though we may feel like we are suffering, we never give up on loving You and loving the people around us. Father, use this offering to Your benefit and to Your glory and for Your purposes. To Your glory, Father. Amen.